Greetings and welcome to Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. I'm Brian Reardon, your host. With me, as always, is Marianne Steiner. She is the editor of the award-winning Journal of CHA, Health Progress. And and I should mention, Marianne, uh, Health Progress uh, was recognized as the Magazine of the Year, and you were recognized as Editor of the Year by the Catholic Press Association. So we're really proud of Marianne's work with Health Progress. And with us uh, today for this episode which is going to be on public policy and the common good. And what we're doing is actually talking to two authors uh, on this topic that recently wrote for us, Father Charlie Burchard. He is CHA's Senior Director of Theology and Sponsorship. And this past spring, he wrote an article called Advocacy, Prophecy, and the Common Good. And we're going to talk about that article. Welcome, Father Charlie. Thank you. And on the phone with us uh, is Professor Sam Hollaby. He is the Manley Hudson Professor of Law at the University of Missouri-Columbia, and he is the author of the summer issue of Health Progress, and the, the article is entitled, ACA Insurance Expansion Shows Signs of Reducing Racial Disparities. And so, again, for this episode, we wanted to kind of um, talk to both of these authors uh, because I think these these topics really are interrelated. If you look at um, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, it is, it's August, and you know I think a lot of us thought back in the spring that maybe things had would, would calm down a little bit with the pandemic. They haven't. Um, so we, we've got this for us uh, in front of us for uh, the foreseeable future. And obviously, healthcare with an election coming up, um, as we're recording this today, there's a Medicaid expansion ballot initiative here in the state of Missouri. Healthcare is at the forefront, I think, of you know how we. Uh, vote and, and how we decide uh, who, who are going to represent us in Washington at the state houses and what have you. And so I thought it would be good to maybe start with Father Charlie. And really, when you know, I read your article, um, Father Charlie, I was struck by the fact that the notion of the common good, I think, is one that really maybe is not well understood by a lot of Americans. And I'd, I guess I'd like to start with you um, kind of defining from your perspective, and particularly from a Catholic social teaching perspective, what is the common good and what are some of the misunderstandings about it? Well, uh, the common good in Catholic social teaching uh, can be referred to as a set of circumstances that enable us to achieve what we're supposed to be as human beings. You know, basic things like community and health care and education and public safety. I sometimes describe it as those things which we all need together, but which none of us can achieve on our own. We necessarily have to cooperate. And in our uh, understanding of it, I think everyone's familiar with human dignity, and I think almost everybody supports that idea. But the common good is so important in Catholic social teaching that it is really to the group what human dignity is to the individual. So it's really a bedrock principle uh, for us. I think in the United States, one of the problems, well, there's a number of problems about it uh, that, that make it difficult for people to accept. One of those is that We were a country founded on freedom and independence. Uh, We have a lot of land, you know, a lot of space so people can spread out without really having to learn to live together. And I think more recently, uh, a lot of Americans equate the common good with big government. You know, whenever they hear that term common good, it kind of sounds like communism or socialism or something like that. And then that makes them think of big government taking over. And I think that's a a big part of the problem. Another one, another problem is that um, the common good is often seen as a matter of um, uh, 
of uh, limiting individual rights. In other words, the more common good there is, the less freedom that I'm going to have. But really, the common good is designed to create more freedom for all of us together. Somebody once referred to it as or drew an analogy between the common good and a highway, that we get together and we build a highway which enables us to pursue our own individual goods. But in order to do that, we got to work together to make the highway. And the common good is, is kind of like that, working together so that we have more opportunity. You also make a distinction between the common good and the greater good. Yeah, I think the, the greater good is usually, now we, we kind of like that idea, but it, it, it's more of a utilitarian concept. In other words, um, it, we got a limited amount of things, and so we're going to do the most we can for the most people, but that doesn't always work out to the same kind of equity that we see in the common good. So I just want to jump in here and say that I think that the Catholic social teaching understanding of the common good is probably not what most people understand as the common good. So when you talk in American society about the common good, you know, it it falls in the category of common sense and common man and, you know, common knowledge. And really the social teaching aspect of this is is quite a more esoteric sense, which you also in your article compared to the reign of God. Right. So would you talk a little bit more about that? Um, I think when we, in our tradition, talk about the common good with a small c and a small g, the ultimate realization of that is really the common good with a capital C and a capital G. In other words, the reign of God, that we, God calls us to this kind of perfect existence with perfect equity and truth and justice. Clearly, we're not there, but um, I think that's there's this supernatural or or uh, eschatological dimension of it. And just one more question on that. What what kinds of things can be done to move the understanding of the common good to something that can be thought of more deeply instead of something tossed aside like common censor? You know, I mean, I, I, it seems to me that there's a whole lot of education lacking about what good could be accomplished by a common good. Well, I think, unfortunately, the COVID virus right now that we're dealing with may have an effect on Americans to make us think about the things that we all hold in common and which we've got to work together uh, to achieve and protect. Yeah, and I think I think you're exactly right. I mean, if you look at um, healthcare in general, it is not um, impacted. Our individual health is not just impacted by the decision I make or Marianne makes, there's so many societal factors that come into that. And that's why I want to bring in Sam now, because I think your article, um, Sam, really spoke to uh, something that was, I think, intended when it was passed 10 years ago to help more people address the common good with health care to make sure that everybody was covered. Um, in your article, you, you kind of tie the, uh, the ACA and Medicaid expansion to really showing signs of reducing uh, the health disparities that exist, particularly with minorities and um, the care that they receive. So can you, I guess, first start with, um, in your article, you highlight how racial and ethnic health disparities affect individuals in profound ways. Can you give some examples of that to kind of set the stage? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the because the article hasn't um, sort of been, been released yet, I, I begin it with 
um, sort of taking as a starting point um, a, a white woman who finds out that she's pregnant and a black woman who finds out that she's pregnant um, and, and kind of traces the course of their pregnancies um, up to and including um, birth and then the lives of the children thereafter. Um, and if you follow those two women, right, even if they're both college-educated, um, the white mother is far more likely to have access to and be able to afford prenatal visits. Um, she's far more likely to have uh, more extensive um, tests be recommended by a physician. Um, she's more likely um, to, to deliver a healthy baby than, than the black mother is. Um, and those disparities continue through life. So once those children are born, um, the white child is far more likely to get regular dental care. Um, he or she is far more likely to have asthma diagnosed and treated more effectively. Um, and then it's sort of the article, um, it's, it's difficult to make this point in, in a kind of a short manuscript, but it really has a lot to do with the kind of the work and employment opportunities. Access to health insurance and health care in this country remains very tied to employment. And the reality is that better jobs that have health insurance as a benefit um, are typically more accessible by white people. Um, and uh, because blacks and, and Latinx Americans have less access to health insurance as a benefit, they are more likely to miss work, um, be sort of reprimanded or disciplined for not meeting um, sort of employment targets. Um, and so all of it ends up causing both uh, cumulative or snowball effects in terms of their health and their income. Um, you know, I can, to your question, I can get more specific into things like uh, colorectal cancer um, screening and sort of heart disease rates, but really that's what I want the, the readers to, to come away with, right, is that those examples that start um, really with conception continue through life, and that's why it's so important that the Affordable Care Act and specifically the Medicaid expansion be seen as a way to really address those, those gaps and those disparities. Yeah, and I think the, the point that came through loud and clear was that having health insurance coverage um, not only, you know, reduces uh, these health care disparities, but also affects uh, positively income inequality, which you just described. Yes, yeah, Sam, that's exactly I, right. And, oh, I'm sorry, I, with that Father Charlie wanted to weigh in. Uh, I just wanted to add, Sam, I, I think you're absolutely right about that, that health insurance uh, enables us to get past just intervention, you know, like going to the doctor when you're sick. It enables us to focus on prevention and management, especially of chronic illness. And those are vitally important, especially beginning with infants, as you suggest. I think it's really interesting. I, I've just been struggling with the term essential workers all through the pandemic because those those people who are deemed to be essential or are more likely not to have insurance. Right, right. Um, and how ironic is it that the person you decide has to be there, whether it's to put together your hamburger or, you know, fill your prescription or whatever, they can't even get health insurance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that, so in the, you know, in the world of sort of identifying what are called priority groups for vaccination, for example. You know, that a lot of that has been mapped out in the context of influenza. Um, 
nobody was thinking of grocery store workers as being sort of essential or priority workers in those conversations. And now it's very much a reality. Sort of everybody involved um, in the production and, and the, the sale of food is, is critical, and it, it's really um, brought to light, uh, you know, inequalities um, not just in sort of health outcomes, but in the, you know, for how we structure work and and compensation generally. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the um, you, that the economic costs affect not only the people who are poorer and and can't get access to care, so they're paying more because they don't have insurance. But how does it affect the economy? How's it going to affect the economy of the state of Missouri if it passes today or if it doesn't? You know, what does it mean for the group of us that um, the economics of this change dramatically when people have insurance and when they don't? Yeah, I mean, I can think, of, and, and really I think Father Charlie um, kind of anticipated my response. I mean, one can just be a a little bit of a of like a hard nosed or even hard hearted analysis, which is um, when people don't seek preventative care um, or they don't um, get chronic conditions treated, then they end up in emergency rooms, um, and that the cost of that care is just enormous, right? It is just more expensive to provide acute um, care in an emergency setting. And then most of the cost of that care goes uncompensated, right? So hospitals provide it, um, both because I think their missions um, demand it and because um, they're by law required to. Um, And then they can't, you know, they essentially spread that cost to all of the other people who do have insurance. So if you really just cared about your dollars and pennies in that way, um, then it would be a reason to care about Medicaid expansion and, and advocate for it. Um, but separately from that, there is, I think, you know, the point raised by Father Charlie with respect to the common good, which is as a result of, you know, unaddressed illness and missed work, we lose out on the creativity and the collegiality and the meaningfulness of all of those individual people in our lives and workplaces, um, either because when they're at work, they are not their best selves or they're just not at work because they're ill. Um, so I think it does affect all of us. Or Sometimes it's even worse, uh, Sam, if uh, people go to work when they're sick because they can't afford to go to the doctor and it diminishes their productivity and it might make other people sick as well. Precisely. So if you look at that, and I think, you know, the cost shifting is something you were you were going at as well, is the reason, and again, this is, I guess, more of an opinion from both of you, that Americans don't see that as being a, a bigger factor in how our, and again, this is not a, a conversation about healthcare financing, that would be a whole other topic, but I think when the, you know, the ACA was debated, it was sort of government taking over control of my health care, making decisions for me. But I think what what the proponents of the ACN, I think what CHA stands for, is that if more people covered, the better it is for society as a whole for the reasons you just outlined, you know, from for maybe economic reasons, for the health of all of us. But, Father Charlie, why um, – and again, this gets back to some of the earlier comments you made – is, you know, that it just kind of gets lost in the debate. It becomes about big government taking over my life as opposed to, hey, let's find out a way – let's find a way, a policy where – you know, with more people covered, it's going to benefit everybody. Well, I think part of it is an attitude that we've developed over the years where we see healthcare as primarily a commodity. You know, you buy it if you can afford it. If you can't, tough. 
And uh, I know there have been a couple disputes in the past. I think maybe even Joe Biden got into one with somebody a couple years ago about resistance to people getting free stuff. You know, like it's a big giveaway to people who don't, quote, deserve it. Presumably, if you don't work for health care, if you don't pay for it, you don't deserve it. But, you know, that's a pretty dumb way of looking at things if we're all in this together. Uh, you know, the, the old saying, when one of us is sick, all of us are sick. So it's not like going out and buying a toaster or a new car. This is something that intimately affects me if you're sick, which we're Sitting here with masks on is obviously we're pretty aware of right now. Yeah, no, I think the, I think the pandemic has really underscored that. Sam, any thoughts on that? Oh, just a complete agreement. I mean, it, you know, I suppose speaking to the legislative history of of Medicare and Medicaid, you know, in 1965, Medicare passed without a great deal of opposition. Um, Medicaid, on the other hand, was was really contested precisely for the reasons that Father Charlie identified. This idea that we're giving people something that they didn't earn. And I, I, I confess, I don't understand it, right? Um, the the reality is that access to, to health care is, is crucial for just being a, an American who participates in everyday life or a human who participates in everyday life. Um, there, there was not then, nor is there now, any evidence to suggest that if you have the minimal access to Medicaid, um, that, you know, current law allows that you're somehow going to sit around and do nothing. Um, and yet that seems to be the kind of specter that's bandied about as being a reason not um, to, to, to adopt it or pay for it. And again, I just don't get it. It's not, there's no evidence to support it, and it's not consistent with what we know about just sort of being a normal human being. And I suspect that there is not a single lawmaker or maybe even politician out there, the people who really make the decisions about this, who do not themselves have adequate health care. You know, so they're looking at this totally from the outside and they're deciding, well, you know, you don't really need this, but they're all covered. And look at members of Congress have great insurance. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a hypothetical for them. Yeah, and and in fact, the, you know, the, the basic structure of the, I mean, this is outside the Medicaid context. The other big contribution of the Affordable Care Act was, was the exchanges, right? And those were meant to duplicate the options that had been available to Congress um, for decades, right? So it was, in fact, an effort to sort of create parity in that sense between access of everyday Americans nationwide and what Congress as a, as a more privileged group of employees had enjoyed. Um, so, Father Charlie, I think you're exactly right. And, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, from let's say you're a lawmaker, a policymaker, if you look at the amount of money we spend on health care uh, compared to other industrialized countries, it's twice as much. And so, you know, they think, well, we're spending too much money. Well, we are, but it's not that we're not spending enough to cover everybody. We're spending I mean, it in the wrong places. That's right. And that's what poli you know, politicians and, and policymakers are supposed to be dealing with. And what do you think about the fact, and we, we referenced that you know, there's a Medicaid expansion on the ballot uh, today as we're recording. Uh, we've seen some pretty red states, conservative states, pass Medicaid expansion. Does that give um, either one of you hope that maybe Americans can see sort of the common good of, of having more people enrolled on Medicaid? Is there a positive to come out of some of the recent ballot initiatives in places like Oklahoma? I don't know, Sam, if you've got an opinion on that. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I conclude the, you know, the article in Health Progress with that 
thought, right? I think that there is a there is a significant incongruity between the electorate who, you know, may sympathize with arguments about why poor people are poor in other contexts, but do believe that even if those things are true, um, that they should at least have access to health care. I mean, when you when you sort of look at what legislators in Nebraska say versus what the ballot initiative did or what legislators in Idaho say versus what the ballot initiatives did. I just can't help but believe that an overwhelming number of Americans really believe that there should be a fundamental access um, to health care, notwithstanding your income. And I, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen with, um, with, resu- with the result of the, the vote today, but, but certainly it, it suggests to me that um, people in Missouri are, are no different than people in Oklahoma or Nebraska or Utah or Idaho, where they essentially overruled state lawmakers in making that decision. Yeah, I think there is a gradual change in public attitude here. I haven't looked at any uh, polls recently, but you know, the one thing that I think resonates with a lot of people is the pre-existing conditions issue that the Affordable Care Act um, uh, protected. And a lot of people know what that means. I mean, they've had personal experience of it. And I, I think that's one thing that's begun to move the needle a little bit. I do think it's a practical thing, though, rather than an ideological thing. I don't, I don't, sorry, Brian. But no, no, no. But I, I think that, um, I don't think that the needle is moving because we are becoming more aware of the common good and our hearts are changing in the ways that we yeah would like all hearts to change. More, more personal. I think it's practical. I think that, yeah. you know, more and more of us know somebody with pre-existing conditions or kids who've graduated from college and, and can't get access to care and uh, people who have successfully used the exchanges. People have, you know, relatives who are on disability and they realize that those people wouldn't be alive if they didn't have those, those sorts of things. So I think... Um, you know, the the more practical, uh, particularly of the red states that have gone with Medicaid expansion, are learning, just like they learned through Social Security and, and Medicare, that there's an advantage to themselves and the people they care about. I, I hope that that's what's happening with, with Medicaid expansion. Um, but I, I don't think we're going to get it by preaching. I think we're going to get it by... Don't tell Father Charlie that. Yeah. <laughs> I have preached about it, I want to say, and I'm going to continue to do that. But you're right. I think it is practical consideration. Yeah. But I'll take that if we've got nothing oh, I, else. Oh, I agree completely. Yeah, I can't wait to see the results today. And and the the other thing, and you referenced this earlier, and, and I love this part in the article, uh, Father Charlie, about the connection between the common good and human dignity as an individual. And I think, uh, I know you referenced that earlier, but can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that gets something Marianne was just saying is that, you know, it all comes down to kind of how does this affect me? And I think particularly in this time of pandemic, when many of us are feeling isolated, um, cut off from friends and family, um, that sense of community and needing to be with people is, is hopefully, you know, something we're all yearning for and, and will come back hopefully stronger than ever when we get a vaccine and things start to – We will never, I don't think everything will be back to normal, but we get beyond the, the crisis we're in now. But there is that connection between sort of me as an individual and how I feel, but then I'm, I'm part of a larger community. And so that, that also, I think, came through in your article about the importance of the common good and understanding it in that context. Yeah, I think we, you know, Americans have this myth about rugged individualism. <clears throat> okay, that's true up to a point, but 
it, it, the fact of the matter is, at least in our view, you cannot become human without a community. You know, you, human beings don't exist that way. That we need other people, and that's where the common good comes into play. And I think, Sam, you would probably say that both law and politics, really the purpose of them is the common good. You know, it's about what we need together. Absolutely. Um, and to Marianne's point, you know, I, or, yeah, I, I don't know, maybe you're right. I mean, if you, so Medicaid, if you, you know, get down into it, it's unbelievably complex, or at least it was complex, you know, pre-ACA. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are these very specific reasons why it ends up being expensive to state budgets, Um in ways that it becomes less expensive if you expand under the, the ACA. Um, and I don't, I would, I wonder if people are thinking about that, but I think you're, you're certainly correct that, you know, people who are facing, you know, opioid addiction or certainly the threat of COVID-19 illness, I think that you're right, that sort of um, this needs to be available for everybody because we can't, we just can't be certain that, that everybody will need it. Yeah, I don't mean to be the cynic among us, um, no, because no I, because I, be <laughs> I think that, you know, the ideas of Social Security and Medicare, um, as, as they were enacted in the earlier decades, n- there was a lot of resistance to them, too. I mean, it took a whole lot for those to be passed. Um, and, you know, when I think of my parents' generation, when they had t- when they were being taxed for things that they thought they weren't going to see the benefits of or that people should have been saving – um, but I think that people have come to understand the value of those. I do hope that the same will be true of Medicaid and the same will be true of of Medicaid expansion and, you know, a healthier ACA, a, re- a revived ACA that's been chipped away at over the last couple of years. So I think um, I'm, I'm not cynical about all of it. I just think that we need to learn and we haven't, I think, had the best education in terms of Medicaid, because most of us had, haven't been as close to it as we have been to Medicare and Social Security. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I think uh, one of the problems we're facing today is that our uh, policymakers and legislatures have not had the nerve to really look at this whole thing, it, it, the whole picture, because we've kind of cobbled this together over the last 60 or 70 years, you know, starting with Social Security and then Medicare and Medicaid and then, you know, dialysis. Uh, that, <laughs> that was a very naive move. You know, they had no idea what they were getting into, providing that free for everybody. But there are all these different pieces and they're inefficient, mm-hmm. you know, and the overhead is enormous. And, of course, the insurance companies have a huge stake in this. Uh, they're not eager to see many big changes in the way we pay for health care. Right. So as we ramp up the discussion, this has been great. I, I guess I would ask both of you, uh, again, we're not trying to get political here. I think, I, as I said at the beginning, CHA you know, has a pretty fundamental stand that health care is a human right. Healthcare is at the forefront of everybody's minds in the, in the, the, the situation we're in with the pandemic. But as, as people head to the, the polls this fall, um, what would you want them to think about? And, and again, it's around not a you know left, right, Republican, Democrat, but just as people talk about as, as politicians talk about policies, how do you how should people frame you know the, the thought of the common good and, and use that as a prism to maybe make decisions about how they might vote? Well, um, 
Sam, I'll let you comment here in a second. I, I think, you know, politicians rarely, if ever, use the term common good, you know, for the reasons that I mentioned earlier. In fact, I actually tried once to find evidence of a politician having used that word, and they never do. But I think I would say if we can't use that word, let's at least talk about how can we create the healthiest society possible? Because if we're sick, we're not going to be a flourishing society. Sam? Yeah, I, I think that that's, I think that's exactly right. I, I wish that I were more optimistic that Americans would internalize the idea of the common good as they vote. Um, I, I, I don't have that optimism. Um, but I do think that there's a basic level of sympathy, um, especially in, a, in the course of a, of a pandemic, um, where more and more people, you know, as Marianne, I think, sort of implies or are realizing that it could happen to someone close to them. It isn't a distant, faraway thing that happens in these places where other bad things happen. Um, that that I, I think will sort of motivate people to, at least on this this very discreet and narrow issue, you know, care enough to approve. Marianne, any final thoughts? Well, I'm I'm so grateful that Father Charlie and Professor Sam Hallaby were able to join us today. They've both written brilliant articles. Um, Father Charlie's is in the March-April 2020 issue, and uh, Professor Hallaby's is in the summer 2020 issue, which should be um, arriving in people's mailboxes next week. Um I, I, it's a lot to think about, and I'm I'm glad that we have such thoughtful people who help us think it think it through. Yeah, and it always makes me feel better to think that there are people in the legal profession and economists and even few politicians who think about these things seriously. So, Sam, thanks for your good work on this, and and thanks to you all. It's been a really terrific conversation. I appreciate. Um, the opportunity to um, to reach the audience of health progress. Yeah, and both articles, again, if, if you go to our, our website, chausa.org backslash podcast, uh, with this episode under the uh, area where you would download the actual audio file, both articles will be linked. Uh, the article by Professor Halabi is called The ACA Insurance Expansion Shows Signs of Reducing Racial Disparities. And Father Charlie Bouchard's article is Advocacy, Prophecy, and the Common Good. Again, two really good articles that I would encourage everybody to read, and that was the, the genesis of bringing both of you together. It's, I, don't, I don't think we've ever had a priest and a law professor on an episode, but it's been a good conversation. So I think, again, both There's of you— There's a joke in there, isn't there? <laughs> There's got to be. There's got to be one in there. <laughs> it sounds like there is. Thank you both. Uh, for Marianne Steiner, I'm Brian Reardon. Uh, this has been another episode of Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association. We Again, we appreciate the help of Clayton Studios in St. Louis for engineering and producing this. And until next time, we'll talk to you.